Hi, and welcome to Behind the Headlines on the SOT Radio Network. I'm Neil Bradley, with me Joe Quinn. Hi there. And Harrison Keeley. Hi, everyone. Today's Sunday, April 8th, and we're discussing Russia, kind of, not really. Russia, this, Russia, that, Russia's all up in your elections, Russia's tentacles are everywhere, it's the primary message, nonstop, certainly on the big topics internationally these days. But any kind of close look at any of the details on any of the topics, even those unearthed by Western journalists supporting this very, the, the narrative of blaming Russia, they all lead to a very different picture. I mean, take alleged Russian meddling in the U.S. election. There are two main strands to it, okay? Trump, the candidate, colluded with Russia to rig the election. The central evidence for that was this steel golden shower dossier. The other strand, Russia used social media to influence voters, if not specifically to elect Trump, than to sow some kind of general chaos in the U.S. On the first charge, we now know that Steele, Christopher Steele, that his source in turn was a London-based political operative of Maltese nationality, but very much in working and moving in British intelligence circles. Now, he was cast as a Russian operative, but on the flimsiest of evidence, he really has very little links. He is steeped, he's almost certainly a British acid, if not an out-and-out operative of the British uh, military intelligence. He, he went to ground. Like Christopher Steele, he's disappeared off, off the face of the earth um, last October. And there are other British too. There's this guy, Robert um, Goldstone. He was instrumental as a source in building the Steele's dossier against Trump and his alleged connection to Russia. Anyways, you've got these strands and they keep leading back to London, not to the Kremlin. The second charge, the Russia influenced U.S. voters with the sub-clause of that being that it influenced British voters in the Brexit referendum. We now know that Cambridge Analytica is basically SCL, Strategic Communications Laboratory, a nominally private group, but which is basically practically an arm of British military intelligence. And it, it, it's not a secret, it's not a conspiracy as such. It's been reported in the mainstream articles in, in the midst of all these. I mean, some of them have done great work. There's like Carol Cadwallader in The Guardian. She's actually done she, the most recent one that blew it open. It didn't. It's actually been going on for a year. There have been over, she's written over a dozen exposés and she's gone into some, some stupendous detail about all the, the connections, the cross-Atlantic connections. And you can see as, as they're trying to give this a Russian spin that they're trying desperately to make a round peg fit in a square hole, namely that this is all Russia. But the picture they're painting is, it's all Atlantic. And an inordinate amount of the connections are based in London, mm -hmm. which is astonishing for such a small country. Um... Yeah. Well, to, I mean, to understand why that is, I mean, people really need to stop and think about the world we live in today and the center 
of power and uh, how long it's been that way, you know, that, that has been that way for a very long time, basically an Anglo-American establishment that has been uh, dominating the world for, for quite a long time. And um, the the reason for that goes back goes back into history you know i mean it's been it's been going on for so long that i mean over the past few years you've heard mention of or heard reference to the international community <clears throat> you know mm-hmm. by uh, western politicians or whatever uh, at the un and in different places and when they talk about the international community they, they use that term international community and if you look at what they mean because they'll talk about it in terms of a certain group of countries uh, having agreed to something and they'll call that the international community and it basically means Western Europe, North America, um, and at times it can mean literally just the United no, States, just the UK. Yeah, but you know, Western Europe, North America, basically, U.S., Canada, Canada, Canada is pretty much always there in these kind of big issues because uh, it's just you know, it's just a kind of a a tag, a tag on you know to to the USA really. It doesn't really have much of a uh, an independent foreign policy, um, but it's basically the the British and the and their Western European allies, French, Germans, to some extent. But really, yeah, all the, you could almost bring it down to the UK and, yeah, and the US as being the international community. Which is a shocking kind of uh, uh, claim to make if you think about it. But they make it without without specifying that it's just really us agreeing on this type of thing. That's the international it's community. Never, it's but it's never all stayed. of Africa, all of South America. Um, most of Asia, none of them, none of them can figure into it. I mean, that comes that that attitude comes from uh, obviously, like I said, it comes from a, a, you have to look to history as to why that would be the case, and you obviously go back to the to the British Empire, uh, rule Britannia, Britannia rules the waves, all that kind of stuff, and um, and the fact that the British had their empire for for so long, and it was it was uh, especially in, in modern history in particular, it was because it led right up into the middle of the 20, 20th century, continued on when other empires had long since kind of disappeared or, or certainly didn't have <coughs> certainly didn't have the reach that, that, that the, the British continued to have up until the middle of the 20th century. And then from about the beginning of the 20th century, or yeah, from about the beginning of the 20th century until the middle when the British supposedly let go of their last uh, outpost of empire, India, in 19, 1950, um, there was a handover. As America came online, uh, the British kind of like passed the baton, uh, as it were, to, to the US, but didn't really relinquish it, but just got a partner, if you know what I mean, got a, a stronger, bigger partner to, to, to maintain the same kind of imperial uh, influence and the same empire effectively around the world, but for a modern age, basically, with, with more scope, more, uh, more resources and... Um, uh, so nothing has changed. So th- these, my point is that these people, and of course the British, British people, British politicians, establishment personalities over generations and generations are, you know, the same people. They're the they're the the fathers, let's say, of American politicians, of the American establishment elite. Effectively, most of them are, you know, are white men. But it's not a, a racial thing really. Here you're talking about just a, an elite, a, a, a group of people who who believe themselves to be um, <clears throat> the leaders of the of the world and you know, power corrupts and ultimate power corrupts. Absolutely. Absolute power corrupts, corrupts absolutely. So uh, they, at this point, they have, haven't been in that position for so long. They, they're basically got very, 
uh, self-satisfied in the position and think they're the kings of the world and they can do whatever. And then over years of of uh, of, of corruption and uh, mismanagement, effectively, of that empire, they're at this point they're they've got some serious personality problems, with serious character disturbing in a certain sense, and they're brought up. Younger ones are brought up in the same mould. Um, so it's not surprising that these people think that they are the international community. They rule the world. They dictate what happens in the world. Uh, and everybody else just basically has to accept it because they've been doing it effectively. That group of, of type of, of, of people uh, have have been doing it for, for a few hundred years. And they're very well accustomed to it at this point and they don't see any reason why anything should ever change. And that kind of that amount of power, and like I said, a sense of kind of being self-satisfied and and overconfident in it, uh, that, that there's no one to challenge you, obviously leads you to do things that ordinarily an ordinary person wouldn't necessarily do in terms of the arrogance or um, you know the, the kind of dirty tricks or the stuff that would be immoral. Effectively, well, you figure, well, there's no one to stop me from doing anything immoral, so. And even morality, isn't it? it's not an issue of morality for them anyway. It's simply a matter of getting what they want and maintaining their positions of power. So morality doesn't even come into it. It's simply whatever works, you know. And all of this, all of these scandals and, you know, international conflicts and stuff, particularly between Russia and China, etc., and the West, that we've seen over recent years, it's because Russia and China have risen up to be able to oppose these people who have been on this throne for so long. And they definitely do not like it. And they're... They're steeped in corruption and uh, and, a, and a grandiosity uh, that allows them to not only that the scope of their own influence around the world uh, allows them to do this, but also their their attitude, their personalities allow them to carry out all sorts of you know devious, underhanded, dirty tricks type operations uh, against, particularly as we've seen Russia and China, basically. So um, it's pretty sad, really. I looked up the <clears throat> the origin or the person who first came up with the phrase perfidious Albion. Mm. I figured it was probably 19th century because there have been a lot of demonstrations of perfidy by that point. And so the name would have had some meaning. In other words, it made sense for it to be coined. But it was actually coined a century prior to that by the French. Um I believe it was mid mid 18th century, so 1750 or so. A French envoy of some some kind came up with this term uh, in French, I guess, but it translates in, in English into perfidious Albion. And the, the specific meaning he he was giving it was uh, Albion refers more specifically to England, mm-hmm. as opposed to did the United Kingdom exist as such then? When in 1750, or was that? The United Kingdom was 1707. Mm-hmm. Okay, so it did. Um, he he was particularly talking, I think he was a particularly, he was describing the mindset of the people he, as an envoy, would interact with. But that would have been the English, basis. like, that would have been the English, primarily even in the United Kingdom, the English always had kind of held sway, you know. I mean, Scotland was a kind of, yeah. a, a, they attempted to make Scotland, or Scotland was a dominion of, of, of owned by the English crown, whatever, or under their sway, same as Ireland and, and to some extent Wales and stuff. So these were just outliers, if you know what I mean, that... Um, and of course, this, most of the <clears throat> most of the population in, in that island would have been centered, kind of further south, you know, closer to the to the to mainland uh, Europe. 
um, basically. So going back historically, you know, and the, that's been the centre of the seat of kind of power would have been down south where it is today, basically in London and, and Westminster. I mean, London was established by the... Uh, yeah. Um, my my first introduction to, the, I suppose, the question that led to the conversation I'm having today was the Iraq War. So I was a young student in the UK at the time, in 2000 and late 2002, 2003. And uh, I was astonished, as, as most people were, as most British people were, that Tony Blair's government was going along so with such gusto mm. with the neocons' plan to shock and awe Iraq. Um, so that, that was my Irish. That was my introduction to it because I suppose the reason um, we're both Irish, but I had not the kind of awareness of my own history that you did. Mm. Uh, and I was taught in Irish schools. Um, I really only learned the actual history after I saw something with my own eyes. So I suppose what I'm getting at is there's a kind of a break in the 20th century. I mean, formally Britain's empire ends, okay? And now whatever remains is the Commonwealth and they're with us of their own volition. So we're not suppressing anybody in order for them to be under our rule or anything like that. And in the interim, it becomes normalized or... What's the word? It, it it becomes it, something happens where it becomes normalized to the extent that the British government, at any given stage in the late twentieth century and then into the twenty first century, can say get away with saying such things as the international community has said so and so and so, mm -hmm. and quite a lot. I don't know if it's ever a majority, but quite a lot of people accept that assumption as a given. It's the truth. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, before 9-11, Iraq, the war on terror, in the 90s, there were other issues. There was the Balkans, um, Kosovo, Serbia. Uh, what was the other major thing that happened in the 90s? Of course, the collapse of the, the Berlin Wall, collapse of the USSR. All these world events where the international community, as claimed by the British government at every stage, is tacitly accepted as their narrative was it was accepted acceptable to most people mm -hmm. in the West um, but lately that's it's, it's gone completely wrong I mean um, it's like it's not it's not working any long, anymore you know and it's not just that recent events have opened people's eyes but recent events shed older events in a new light Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, I'm I'm going back, and we have an article about it at the moment. But it's a subject I'm really interested in as well. It's the First World War. I mean, the great conflagration of the 20th century that then you know had a knock-on effect. Really, it set it set up the whole 20th century. The Great War. Um, it's again accepted fact. No one, no one would find it contentious to say that. Look, Germany was really to blame. Okay, the Versailles Treaty was maybe too harsh on Germany, and that led to the problems that justified Hitler's rise in the eyes of Germans because uh, they were too harshly punished. But nevertheless, 
the British role, which is at least 50-50 in starting that conflict, if not higher, is just excise. Mm-hmm. It's the, the, the well, memory. It, what do they say? A blind spot in our... The victor writes, writes the history, right? Right. So, yeah. But, you know, our, po- our point here is is that it's just there's a... There's a I suppose it's a, a, a very blinkered view of, uh, of the West's uh, role in not just uh, in history, obviously, amongst the, amongst the average person in the street, there's a blinkered uh, uh, role or a, a just a, or a blinkered view, a, a wrong conception of, of, of the history of, of the British and more recently America in, in history. And uh, all of that kind of, if you could almost say it as all of that evil, all the evil that they have done, all of the dirty tricks, all of the underhanded, very far from democratic or moral activities they've engaged in have, are all today being projected onto Russia which is not doing any of it. You know, it's basically like it's a, it's a projection from a psychological point of view. It's maybe you could say it as projection, you know, projecting all of your evil basically onto someone else. And it's gotten really bad at this point where they're just doing it uh, kind of willy-nilly. They're just making it up as they go along and just saying, Russia did it, Russia. I mean, there's so many memes around, you know, Russia did it, Russia, you know, pretending, Russia, you know, Russia ate my homework, Russia kind of ruined my, my relationship, Russia, you know, uh, stole my, you know, whatever phone, you know, um, it's that's that's it's got to that point where people, even the average person in the street, kind of can 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 understand that or see the truth in that. Basically, that there's this hysterical uh, blame Russia for absolutely everything, you know, and it's only it only flies with some people because of this whitewashed version of history, uh, of British history, basically of what of because of like you said, they've kind of excised it from from the history books, the official teaching of history, where. Uh, and all of that stuff that Britain did, has done in the past, um, just doesn't appear in history books. And is, uh, if it ever comes out, it's like, it's kind of uh, justified by, uh, by well, it was for democracy. Like, kind of like that uh, Wolsey guy, the former CIA director, said yeah. to on Fox News there a few weeks back, said basically, yeah, well, maybe we, we interfere in other people's uh, elections, you know, but it's for it's for very good reasons, for, for, for the furtherance of democracy, etc., you know, which is just, you know... It's obviously bullshit, like you know. But uh, what are you going to do when? Uh, and the problem with the empire business and, and the, this, the history of the British Empire passed over the American Empire and their uh, their spread around their dominance around the globe means that they have a very a long history, an established history of of media dominance and media infiltration, uh, you know, control of the airwaves basically, which makes it very difficult for um, for any real truth to get out. You know, a more balanced view of, of what actually happened to get out. You know, uh, and like we've often said on the show in the past. America operates, uh, a lot of success that America has is based on uh, its reputation, maybe, you know, a large percentage, maybe more than 50% of its of, of its ability to do what it does around the world is based on America's reputation as, you know, the greatest country in the earth. And, and as a force for good. <clears throat> well, effectively, yeah. Force for good, a force for freedom, freedom of democracy, right? The Iraq War, mm-hmm. um, and that you can trust them, that they're good partners, that, do, that you can rely on them. Um, in, the, in the 19th century, um, the Americans were, were latecomers to this game because the British had long since um, been out there, along with other European empires. But the, the narrative for getting out and colonizing the rest of the world was to civilize it. Right. It wasn't quite – it wasn't freedom and democracy. That came online around 1890, 1900, mm-hmm. um, a, a change in the, in the script, if you like. Before that, it, it was to civilize people. Um and I think that, I think to a large extent they sincerely believed that they were doing so. Um, 
it's a it's a complex myth because it's it's not a lie completely. There's some truth to it. Because and this is why British history is, and then later, less more broadly, Anglo-American history. It's it's important because it it happened. It occurred at a time where it it was the handmaiden to modernity. Mm-hmm. Modernity coincided with, although they claim it is theirs. That's probably a little too much. I think it's more of a coincidence of factors mm-hmm. that modernity comes online with. Um, the rise really, of... the first world mm-hmm. empires right. on earth ever. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, it, it facilitates them, allows them, allows them to spread. I mean, they get they get a lot of gain a lot of traction and ability to spread themselves around the world and do what they did as a result of modernity, the evolution of technology, etc. Particularly in the past, you know, after the industrial revolution, say in the early eighteen hundreds, uh, from then on, it just it was you know you had uh, you know steam engines and then you know planes and all that kind of stuff at the beginning of the of the twentieth century. I mean, it's a lot has happened in the in the twentieth century, and that explosion of technology has, has facilitated uh, you know uh, that the the maintenance, let's say, of of the of the Anglo-American Empire, and uh, yeah, it's it's there's something very strange about it in, in that sense, where it's it's a real coincidence. You know, you have to wonder if well, it was just a stroke of, of of luck or good luck. But then you could say that some people say that it would have happened. Any anybody else who had that was in that position would have done the same thing. Would have would have gone around the world dominating and exp- dominating and exploiting everyone else. And and basically, you would have. There's to, also a saying that <clears throat> one makes one's own luck. No? Yeah, yeah, but. They, but they didn't. They didn't. Uh, the West wasn't responsible for the Industrial Revolution in that sense. You know what I mean? Like those technologies aren't. Those kind of ideas aren't. <clears throat> don't belong to any one person. It's yeah. Like, well, you produce, like, we produce the kind. We give birth to the kind of people who could conceive of those ideas. That's that's kind of nonsense. You look back at throughout history and you see, um, you know, like the the the, the for example the um, after the Dark Ages, whatever, when Europe was you know was kind of wiped out. Uh, Possibly by some kind of a uh, conflagration or a meteor, um, uh, maybe a meteorite impact or something that set most of Western Europe uh, on fire and this was, uh, you know, uh, caused or contributed to the fall of the Roman Empire, etc. After that, uh, it was the it was the the Arabs and the Moors who who brought the kind of all all of, at that time technology back to Europe and even before that going back way, way, way back when algebra and engineering and all that kind of stuff was not the domain of, of of white people of English people or people living in that island or people you know well there was nobody there was mm-hmm. no white people in America at the time it wasn't it wasn't theirs you know so the idea this idea that, that white people are uh, you know the, the fount of of, yeah. all, of all modern, <coughs> modernity it's just nonsense it's just, so it brings it back to the idea of that just a coincidence you know in that sense it just happened to uh, to, to, to to happen to happen that way, you know. Um, yeah. Well, um, uh, but, go ahead. Yeah, can I just uh, go off on that a little bit? Sure. Um, I'm. I just started reading Thomas Sowell's new book. Uh, I think it's called uh, "Discrimination and Disparities." Just came out this year, and in the first chapter, he he talks about something that's relevant because his main idea is he's gonna he's going to get into discrimination and and um, why there are disparities between groups. And, of course, Thomas Sowell isn't uh, an SJW, so you know what direction it's going to be if you're familiar with his work. He's so a conservative American author. He's, yeah, he's a yeah, uh, philosopher, economist, um, really interesting guy, really smart. And one of the things – well, so in his first chapter, he's talking about 
um, the different things that can lead to disparities in um, outcome that don't have anything to do with um, discrimination. So one of, the, one of the types of examples he uses is like what you guys have been talking about, um, different cultures and groups. And the way he gets there is to describe um, like a hypothetical individual um, who is, let's say, um, um, looking for a certain position, like a job or something, just any, any kind of um, um, activity or um, position or achievement. And he says that there will be, usually in any kind of complex thing like that, there will be several uh, prerequisites. So you have to have all of these different characteristics before you can even basically qualify for that position. So, and, and when you, being a mathematician, economist, he can kind of break it down just with a really simple example. Like, let's say that each of these prerequisites is pretty common in the population. Like, maybe you have a two out of three chance of having any one of those um, features. But then when you need all six of them, that means that, uh, you know, it's two over three times six, and it ends up being like something like one in eight or something. And so right away, that cuts down the number of people who will be able to um, fit that position um, drastically. And when you have, when it's complex enough, you're going to have a very tiny percentage of people who will actually be qualified for that kind of success. And so he gives the examples, <clears throat> the example of companies and um, nations or countries or cultures. And he gives the example of uh, well, a couple of examples, one being China, um, how China was uh, like the most developed country and civilization in the world in like the 1400s. And when the, the emperor sent out the, like their giant um, ships, like sea ships to, to discover the world, basically, <clears throat> like these were ships that were what I, th I think you've read about the, this, Neil, like 10 times bigger than Columbus's ships, for example, yeah. like yeah, they were just like marvels of of engineering, and basically, so they went out and they they sailed the world, they established trade and stuff. But then they came back, and the emperor, um, after hearing the reports from the like this famous navigator explorer, said, "Oh well, it looks like the rest of the world is kind of you know crap, and there's nothing there." So, right in the mid 1400s, the emperor shut like shut down the program <clears throat> and banned any contact with the outside world. Now, so so China was on top of the world. And so it, um, you know, using Sowell's model, it had all of the prerequisites for, like, you know, extreme success mm -hmm. in, uh, you know, in the way we measure it in, in terms of cultures and societies and technologies and things like that. But then by closing off from the, the, the rest of the world, that was right when Europe started, um, you know, developing themselves again and actually learning something, um, you know, scientifically and, um, um, you know, technologically. So China had basically cut itself off from from that kind of cultural contact, maybe if they would have um, kept themselves open, they might have been a part of that and not I, kind of lost their supremacy. I want to intervene there. That it, it's a very good topic in itself. Um, that's actually not established. It's 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 one of the best theories, certainly in the West, to explain what's called the Chinese anomaly. Why it did not take advantage of its hegemony in military, technological, economic superiority in the mid 15th century, but it's not actually a clear thing that they decided to quote shut themselves off from the world because they did continue to trade regionally, um, and they did continue to allow especially when they arrived, they started to arrive first with the Portuguese European traders to come and trade 
along the Chinese coast. So it, it's a bit of a myth that they shut themselves off. And I think it's a kind of a, a, a post facto explanation right. that European authors have come up with right. because they're kind of anxious why, to go to explain, well, why, why do we do it and not them? Why um, were the Chinese so predatory? Yes. Or predatory enough <coughs> in order to, to continue to rule the world after, you know, the 1415 up into the modern era? Why didn't they do that? Well, you look at the, I mean, you look at the interaction that the British had with uh, with the Chinese during the, the whole opium wars oh. business. I mean, that that was a calculated. That was something that <clears throat> apparently, you know, China never it never conceived of doing. Basically, was that when they went out to see the rest of the world, they thought, "Hey, you know, this this country, maybe like Western Europe, has, has a lot of potential resources. What if we? Uh, but they won't let us take them all. So what if we just get them all addicted to opium? You know, let's produce some opium or or, or get get lots of opium and sell it to these people and get them addicted to it and then they'll be much more compliant, we'll be able to basically destroy their, their society from the inside and take whatever we want. That's the kind of approach, that's the, that is the approach the British took. Mm-hmm. So here we get back to uh, a problem of, uh, of attitude and uh, a predatory mindset basically that, that um, so we said earlier on that, the, that, the, that there's nothing special about uh, white people in the sense of producing the modern era and producing technology and producing the modern world and stuff, that's not necessarily, mm-hmm. that's not true that there's something unique to them, that, that someone else couldn't have done that. Uh, but it's more, if you add in the, the predatory aspect, and that's the primary reason why um, the West rules supreme today and, and continues to do. And we see even up until today that that approach, that underhanded dirty tricks kind of approach is the way that they <clears throat> have decided on as the best way to, to maintain their their control or to get what they want to 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 play the game, let's say of international uh, diplomacy or, or or negotiations or or, or trade or whatever between uh, relationships between between foreign countries, you do it uh, as in an underhanded way if if necessary, and very often you have to because uh, mm-hmm. you can't reign supreme and be the top dog and have uh, the lion's share of everything forever without in some way or other, suppressing or dominating the people who would naturally uh, rebel against that kind of imbalanced or unfair uh, situation. So, mm-hmm. uh, and that's, that's yeah. kind of, well, that's where I was kind of going with this. So one of the things Sowell says, well, so Sowell wasn't, isn't talking about, um, like he doesn't make any reference to, you know, China being predatory or anything like that. His, his point was that... Uh, um, you know, using that, whether it's true or not, the the story about China closing off is that China had basically gotten rid of one of the prerequisites for being on top and weakened itself to the extent that it was vulnerable to, let's say, the British. But regardless of that, um, just to, to come back to the, one of the points about, uh, like, Europeans and white people, for example, not being, um, like, genetically or just uh, inherently, um, you know, superior – he gives a funny example of the, uh, I think it was one of the Ottoman rulers or something like that, um, who had quipped famously that the further north you get, the more barbaric um, people are, and the whiter their skin, the more barbaric they are, and the, the less the the less civilization they have. And this was funny because this was when, um, you know, there was no civilization as such, you know, in the in northern Europe or even uh, Western Europe. Um, that's where the so-called barbarians were. Um, so just kind of funny how, and he he used that example as a, an example of things swinging in different directions. So one group will be on the top at one moment. They will 
lose a prerequisite or a new prerequisite will be introduced just through, you know, the, the kind of um, complex ways that societies develop and that, uh, that history develops, that um, a new group will then um, come into the, the forefront because of some quality they have that lends themselves towards success. And he, he ties that into companies too. For example, you know, the famous example of Kodak, who was on top of the, the film um, production industry, like producing actual film, you know, for cameras. Mm -hmm. And how in something like 2000, they had, they were like making like, they were worth like 19 billion or something like that. And then that was right around the time where the, the digital camera was introduced. Right. And within five years, they went bankrupt mm -hmm. because the, you know, the digital just totally replaced them. And they, ironically, they had actually developed one of the first um, digital image sensors, but they hadn't developed it. They hadn't, you know, uh, they hadn't innovated based on their, their own technology. And so they were just, you know, off the map. Um, they got, you know, wiped off the, the map of history um, because they got replaced. And so Sowell uses the, this as kind of like an example that happens all over the place, whether on the level of individuals or up to, to nations, and how uh, the people on top at one moment can be gone in an instant based on just these very subtle changes in um, in what actually works, you know, what what prerequisites um, for success are, uh, um, what's the word, like um, what, pre what prerequisites will actually work given the conditions that, um, you know, the current conditions that, you know, whatever's going on in. Mm -hmm. So, I you know, you're on top. You're on top for one minute, and you're gone the next. Right, and one of those prerequisites is 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 to have a predatory aspect to your to your um, to your list of of, of traits or of, of yeah. Uh, well, and it can skills. be. It doesn't it doesn't need to be. Um, that can well, you know hypothetically that can become a um, you know a hindrance in in the right conditions. Uh, yeah, but I think if it's, if it's mar if predatory nature is married to kind of decent enough intelligence, uh, then that those two aspects will probably always always win out, you know, unless you find someone who's more intelligent than you. I mean, there are other other, other ways to, other aspects that could compete with that, and we're maybe seeing that right. in, in, in Russia and China today, you know. Um, but throughout history, when at the, at the beginning, you know, when things are getting set up, who's going to who's going to be top dog, you know, when the hierarchy is being established, well, the one who's most predatory uh, combined with some intelligence or decent amount of intelligence is probably going to, in the, in the situation where others that you're competing with are not predatory, are not so predatory, uh, not so conniving or scheming, and not so willing or able or inclined to kind of stab you in the back and screw over other people, screw over your partners, you know, say one thing to your face and say, do, do something else behind your back, that kind of thing. Those attitudes obviously are a recipe for success. Um, maybe. I think that there are probably other you know, numerous other factors that need to be involved, but for the most part, I mean, well, if you take it to like a biological level and evolutionary level, um, you know, the example that from Francis DeWall, the, the primate researcher who um, Jordan Peterson likes to quote, it's like the, you know, the most predatory chimp will, um, you know, when he, if he has a bad day, he'll be taken out by two of his inferiors who have been, um, you know, discriminated against by him. Um, so it can be a, a weak game if you don't have um, other factors kind of backing you up. And one would be, you know, technological superiority and, um, you know, by, by extension, military. Um, but, you know, as any of these factors gets weakened or taken away, 
that intelligence and predatoriness can be, um, you know, it can become a liability and you can lose your position. Yeah. Although, like I said, when it's married with intelligence and part of that intelligence would be an awareness of the fact that there are other people who may who may be trying to or would are trying to unseat you and will, will unseat you at any opportunity. If you have that awareness, then um, that's going to be a, you know, it's going to mitigate against that ever happening, you know. Um, but I think I think it's basically well those those factors that, that I mentioned, like predatory nature and intelligence and awareness of of the situation, a kind of cunning and a uh, that kind of level of intelligence, you know, uh, where you're basically out for yourself all the time, which is similar to a predatory nature. Um, that you're you're always going to uh, remain on top, but not not always, let's say, but you're going to rise up the hierarchy very quickly. Uh, like we talk about, in, it's in various books, like, you know, snakes in suits that talk about psychopaths and stuff, but that trait of, of being able to smile at someone when they turn around, stab them in the back <clears throat> uh, and do it in such a way that someone else get, gets blamed, you know, that level of deceit mm-hmm. uh, is very successful on, 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 until obviously, you know, you get found out enough mm-hmm. people get, get that treatment that, that you, they turn on you, you know, and you have to then be rely on your intelligence and your your cunning to basically maintain your position, you know. Um, mm-hmm. But so it's a it can it can it can take quite a long time for that to happen, you know. And right. as long as you can keep other people down and keep them suppressed, you know, um, then you can maintain your position for quite a long time. But it's certainly not <clears throat> not a a viable strategy for forever or for the long term, obviously, because right. ultimately you will piss off uh, enough people. That you will be you will be taken down, mm-hmm. you know. Um, well, and they've also done studies on companies like I, I, don't, I don't know if Babiak, who wrote the book with with Robert Hare, was involved in them, but they they've done studies on corporate psychopaths, um, like I think in CEO positions, and have found that the the companies run by psychopaths actually do a lot poorly, more mm-hmm. poorly than other country other companies. So right. basically. You know, th- there's the myth that the psychopath is a great, um, you know, Wall Street guy or whatever because he's ruthless and because he can make the hard choices, right? But it d- doesn't actually end up working that way. Those countries, they're, it's miserable to work in them, mm-hmm. and they aren't very effective and they don't do very well. So, yeah, um, so it, yeah it's not a good long-term cor- strategy. Yeah, maybe a corporation isn't the best uh, analogy for, for the U.S. government or the, the, the British government today. Or it has, as it has been for quite a long time, a better analogy would be a mafia. The mafia does pretty well, mm-hmm. you know. Corporation mm-hmm. has to is limited in terms of it has to obviously produce a product and, and sell it and, and work well within their corporation to actually make it financially successful over the long term. You can't have bad management at the top. But if if you do, if that happens under the rule of psychopaths in in, in such a, an organisation, uh, if you're able to then, for example, go to your other, go to another company, a competitor. And uh, steal all of the resources, uh, and just take them and say, "Shut up, or I'll have you shot." Uh, then you can continue on. Your corporation mm-hmm. will do quite well, you know. Um, so yeah, I mean, we're talking about that's that's corporate law that mitigates, that stops that kind of thing from happening, and no corporation would be able to do that for any length of time. Um, but governments are different, different kettle of fish in that sense. Uh, they 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 are obviously able to do that, uh, like invade other countries and steal the resources. Uh, and say, uh, 
thanks very much. Uh, and have everybody, everybody in the country, force everybody in the country to say thank you very much, or at least via your media. You know, it's a, it's, it's a much it's a much worse situation than just a corporation. It's like you're talking about complete domination of, uh, as we were saying earlier, of, of the airwaves as well, because of the, the spread of the British Empire that then handed off to the American Empire. You have like a, they were on first, basically, in the modern era, uh, established, and, and with the modern technology and stuff, they established themselves around the world. And with that came, obviously, a big part of it was propaganda and the spread of information, and that was dominated and controlled by the media organisations from uh, back home in America and, and, and in the UK. Uh, and they could shape the, the narrative so that uh, no one ever found out, you know. Uh, there was never, mm-hmm. no, po- no possibility for popular uh, popular kind of, uh, you know, anger or, or upset uh, that might have, have changed things, you know. You can basically... Uh, through the media, you can distort what people actually believe uh, or know what has been happening and what you've been doing, you know. So it's, it's actually very bad because that kind of a thing, ultimately, when you get complete control of everything uh, and everything that you're doing is based on a lie and you're you're lying to all the population and all the, popula- the population is believing it and stuff, well, eventually, at some point, you can see how the curtain would have to be pulled back on that, you know. The, the nature of the beast would have to be revealed at some point. Uh, because you only go so far in deceit and lying to people until the chickens come home to roost, where it's obvious now that all the stuff we've been told for so long is not actually true. And then there's a big, you're setting themselves up for a big fall, basically, you know. You're putting mm-hmm. off longer and longer the, the time when there have to be a, a calling to account. Uh, and there will be, if only just through a natural process. No, one, no one's necessarily going to out you. No one's going to kind of expose the all of the the dirty doings of, of, of the West around the world in, in one big uh, kind of you know uh, in one big in one article or something or one, or one big dissemination of information to the public um, but eventually it becomes self-apparent like the truth ma- you know manifests itself in a certain a certain sense or, or, or the, the, the divergence between the lie and what's actually happening becomes too great and even your control of the media can no longer mm-hmm. sustain the illusion, and you get tripped up in your own in your own lies. Right. Um, let's not even call them lies. Let's just call them your own myths, mm. because your narratives get confused. This is what's extraordinary to me about the current two big issues: the Cambridge Analytica and then uh, the Skripal affair, this alleged chemical attack by Russia. I mean, Russia is obviously the if we're, in a, if we're in a court of law here, the court of international media opinion, Russia is the defender. It has to defend itself. It doesn't need to do much. Um, on the other side, the British and the Americans are ranting about the Kremlin and its propaganda, right. avalanche of propaganda coming in there. But statistically, just look at the, the percentage of the airwaves that Russia has with RT, Sputnik, and a few other things. It's tiny. It's, mm. it's not even a dent. It's nothing. But they choose to focus their ire on Russia's tiny input. But it's kind of irrelevant. The vast majority of the truths being outed, trickling here and there, are coming from the West's own mouths. It's it's so, it's becoming increasingly apparent and obvious in the course of reading or listening to someone in London or Washington just just saying or just making their case mm. for why this is the truth. 
this is the true picture of it. It's it's riddled with inconsistencies, right. and it, it betrays their and, own hand. Right, and the media has to be careful because they don't want to discredit themselves so much that people start stop listening to them. So they have to pay, give some lip service to the pos, to the to the discrepancies, to the the problems with the official government narrative. They have to actually say because those are the things that pop into ordinary people's minds, and people will start. To, disbelieve the media if the media simply parrots every single word the government says they're meant the media has credit or uh, with the people on the basis of it being an impartial observer right even though it's not but that's the idea that it's an impartial observer and it would hold government corruption uh, to, uh, to scrutiny and hold government politicians feet to the fire type of thing you know uh, if the media stops doing that at all then the media loses any it, it, it loses its 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 reason for existing or its purpose, uh, because what's the point in, in in broadcasting anything if every if you have discredited yourself to the point where nobody believes you anymore? They have to maintain some credibility with the public, but it's getting more and more difficult for them to do that to, to basically sit on to, on both of those stools in a certain sense, but to not go so far that they out the government for what's really going on, but at the same time um, give the population, give the people some kind of evidence that they're that they're questioning the official narrative and, and that they know that politicians aren't always uh, truthful so the media has to kind of like say hmm Boris Johnson you know maybe did he did he was this a mistake that he made was it you know they have to they have to they quibble and they're mealy mouthed about it and it's very dis, disreputable you know it's very disingenuous the way they do it but they're trying to hold on to the to the credit credibility they have with the public while at the same time servicing the lies of government you know, and that, like I said, is, is something that's not not really. If the lies compound and get bigger and bigger and more egregious, uh, that's not something that's really tenable for them for them to do in the in the in the long term. Eventually, um, eventually, it's just gonna. Well, I think we be a can break, say you know? we can say this now with hindsight that um, uh, an, another factor in why this was always going to be short term on the scale of human civilizations mm -hmm. it's long term in terms of history it's two centuries we were all born into this but it was always going to run its course because we can say this with hindsight because of the instant media effects of instant communication boris johnson opens his mouth and right. it's on twitter instantly around the world anyone right. can access it right. once the kind of information airwaves the playing field as started to become level, it was curtains yeah. for them, really, because everything is up, up for question. Mm -hmm. And th they obfuscate that development. It's a technological development, largely. They obfuscate it by throwing their hands up and going, oh, well, it's all fake news. Mm -hmm. we're, we're in the post-truth era now. I guess you can't just, you can't believe anything then. Right. And in the next paragraph, they'll repeat the mantra, mm -hmm. liberal democracy was born in Britain, the glorious revolution, uh, we must preserve this right. and encourage it and tell everyone else in the world they must hold them to, to our higher standards. Right. In the next paragraph. Right. And that's, that's, that's as a separation happens, we have, you know, a kind of a separation for, of, of what people understand as the truth and what the politicians are saying. As that, as that gulf gets wider and wider, it's kind of like black and black and white. It gets more and more into black and white. Like they're, they're start, people start believing that all politicians lie right. uh, and that's it, you know, and they're not going to believe anything they say. So, and, and they're getting that from a competing narrative that's coming in from alternative media and from, say, Russian sources and stuff. So the, the establishment's, uh, response to that was to 
throw a bunch of grey water in the middle, which is fake news. You can't be sure, you know. So that, that's a tactic that they're, that they're effectively using, calling things fake news. That uh, they want. They're basically when they say fake news, when they put out this thing, how do we combat fake news? What they're saying is, how do we combat? How do we combat the truth? How do we? How do we stop uh, the, the counter narrative to the official narrative from from gaining traction? Well, we just say that. It, we try to water it down and, and, and say that you can never know anything anymore. And that serves the liars, obviously. I mean, if you, if you think of someone who's lying as a profession, basically, like everything they do is to, is to lie to the public, then uh, to say when they're in danger of being exposed for doing that, the best thing they can hope for is that someone would say, well, you know, you, you can't be sure of anything anymore. Like you were saying, you know, you can't, you know, just to, to try and force people just to walk away, you know, to not... To not really look at it anymore. Just say it's too complicated. It's too confusing. Just, you know, don't even try and figure it out yourself anymore. You know, it's too complicated. You know, mm -hmm. there's no there's no truth to be had here. You can't say the government was lying really exactly in that. You know, because there's there's details you're missing and blah blah blah, and you never know who's lying to you. I mean, maybe the people who tell you people who tell you that they're telling you the truth, maybe they're lying to you. You ever thought about that? Hmm. It's not so sure. And people just throw their hands up and go, "Well, to hell with that, damn. You know, I'm not even going to bother anymore." You know. But you should see that as a tactic, you know, and there is, you know, objective truth uh, that stands in opposition to to an obvious lie, you know, mm -hmm. the objective truth being the opposite of the lie or the exposure of the lie is that the truth. Um, but it's, uh, yeah, I mean, that's kind of like a, a summation or, or a summation more or less of, of why this anti-Russia stuff is, is is going on at the minute it's basically over the past number of years and why this anti-russia hysteria has reached fever pitch and why they're basically blaming everything uh, evil or bad on russia <clears throat> um is because they've been in a position of ascendancy for so long and like we said it was the british who established this kind of global empire to beat all empires from the <clears throat> 1700s right up to 1950 and then the americans more or less took over in the 20th century and it was a handoff it was a transference of of, of more or less uh, or even a partnership, because the British didn't just go away, they remain as the, and they have the legacy, and it's in their minds, it's in the British mindset, or particularly in the English mindset of, we rule the world, you know, rule Britannia, Britannia rules the way. And they have a song about it. I mean, what other countries have a song like that? I'm pretty sure there aren't any that have it so explicit. You know, rule Britannia, Britannia rules the waves, Britons never, never, never shall be slaves. Which has, in, in the context of that, that of when those words were written, Britain had slaves and was sending people off to slave colonies and penal colonies all around the world. So they were saying basically every other people will be slaves, but we will never. And in fact, other people, the other people who are slaves, will be our slaves, and we will never be slaves. So it's really a, a, a supremacist uh, uh, viewpoint, yeah. and and that's what this is the country what, from where <clears throat> liberalism emerged. Right, freedom. Yeah, but that's, individual freedom. Right. But that's, that's the attitude they're steeped in, and you can't just get rid of that over a few generations. It's been there for, for many generations, and it's, it's part of uh, British and particularly English culture, you know, and you see it in football supporters and their attitude. People wonder why English football supporters are, the, are, are a plague on a certain section of them or a plague on, on, on European countries when they go around to football matches. It's because of that attitude. You know, that is the attitude in those people, even those people, though those people, uh, most of them would be fairly kind of like, you know, not very well educated and stuff. One thing, they don't know an awful lot, but what they do know is that England rules forever. Inger, we won, we, England won the war, we beat the Germans, we did this. We're, you know, basically we civilized the world. We're the best ever, you know. 
and uh, you can't just you can't get rid of that. And and that that attitude among the population is indicative of it being. I mean, it's maybe it's fairly watered down amongst the general population. It's more concentrated in some aspect in some areas of the population than others, but it's generally in one in one form or another, to one extent or another, spread throughout the English population. But at the higher levels, where it comes from, it's very concentrated. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, I've talked to people uh, and read uh, the words of people <clears throat> who, in in the modern era, in the past ten or fifteen years, who were members of the, effectively of British establishment. They were like social, uh, I call them civil servants, high-level civil servants, civil servants, effectively. These are like the backroom boys. They're not politicians, they're not elected, but they basically control foreign policy. Bureaucrats. Bureaucrats control foreign policy. And uh, and they're all, a vast number of them are toffee-nosed tossers. You know what I mean? And, and, and <laughs> they're, they're the, quint- the worst of the well, well, they're basically, aristocratic You class. could take them and put them back 200 years and their accents and their attitude would not have changed, has not changed at all in terms of their worldview, their view of their, they're fundamentally racist in a, in a you know, anachronistic kind of way, in a ridiculous kind of way, you know, and, and that's it's, still it's their attitude, you know, and it hasn't changed. And that's, I mean, so things don't change in that respect. 200 years ago, if you look back 200 years ago, the British Empire and its attitude towards other peoples around the world, there are the people ruling the British establishment, governing or controlling the British establishment have not changed in their attitude. It's just like, it's just like you've cloned those people over generations and the same ones are in power in Whitehall in, in London today, in the seat of British power and today in the, in the Department of Defence, you know. Not all of them, but the ones who actually hold sway are the ones who have... Because they're seen as the ones who should hold sway because they have the imperialist mindset. They have the attitude of Britain, top of the heap forever, you know. And it's hard to argue with someone, if you see yourself in an organisation, who is the most vocal about how great we are as an organisation, as a country, and how we should always be the best. You know, those kind of people get promoted, you know, because, well, that guy's got the right attitude. He's going he's gonna to do what's in the best interest of the UK. So, um, and the same applies to, to America, but in a weird kind of more modern version of, you know, kind of na- in a certain naive and uh, somewhat more naive way in, in the US, you know, with um, being more steeped in, in the freedom and democracy kind of thing. We have, I think if a lot more people in, in, in the American establishment, political establishment, who actually believe the bullshit about freedom and democracy, there's the, the, the British, the English would be extreme, much more cynical about it, you know, because they've had a longer history of knowing that that's really not how it works. You know, we say that to the public, but that's not how it works. And they have a long, much longer history of, of uh, enslaving other people and, and treating other countries very badly. And, and engaging in all sorts of dirty tricks to to have any serious pretensions or beliefs that that what, what they're doing is is for the good of of the world type of thing. So, and that's what makes the British, in my estimation, much more cynical, you know, at least in their attitudes. But of course, America, being a much bigger brother, much more more military might and more economic power and stuff, is doing more uh, directly, is more directly engaged in in in, in messing the world up effectively. Uh, but the British are the—it's almost like the British are the ideological seed, the ideolo- predatory ideological seed uh, that that has produced and maintained and maintains uh, the the American attitude. You know, there's a big um, counter narrative in the U.S. that uh, Israel and more broadly Zionism 
that rather that the US is the handmaiden to it. So that small country manipulates, particularly US foreign policy. Um, putting that aside for a second, can we? Can I ask the same question vis-a-vis -vis Britain? Would you give any credence to, given what you've just said, to the idea that Britain can manipulate this much bigger country? The US? Yes. Or is that taking things too well, far? Think, I'm just well, going on, well, I think there's on a, the recent scandals. I mean, yeah, but I think, yeah. They seem to be the brain behind a lot of it. Yeah. Well, there's, like I said, they're steeped in it and that's their MO there. That's the way they do things. They know very well how to, how to do uh, the kind of thing with the script Oliver mm. and stuff. Uh, it's, it's nothing new to them, you know. Um, but I think there's a, there's a misconception about the idea that Israel controls America or, or some one of these three countries, let's say America, UK and, uh, and Israel, that one of them controls the other or one of them mm -hmm. is smaller ones are controlling bigger ones. I mean, there's a convergence of interest there. You don't yep. need, Israel doesn't need to control, control the US or influence the US or manipulate the US in order to, uh, you know, do what they're doing in the Middle East. In Syria, for example, do you think the US doesn't want to? Do you think that the, the empire builders in the, in the, in the CIA uh, don't think it's a good idea to, uh, to have a military as much military presence in Syria as possible and to overthrow Assad and all that kind of stuff. Sure, Israel wants that as well. And Israel, they're working together, basically. They're, they're, they have a common ideology, you know, and uh, Israel, you know, you could look at it from a psychological perspective with the Israelis, you know, the wandering Jews and we have no homeland and we've always been under attack and stuff. And that would make them want to find a very secure position where they could never be attacked and, and, um, and will always have a big... Uh, a bodyguard to defend them and, and spread their influence, you know. I mean, there's no end to that. Once you think, like, there's enemies everywhere, and which, the Jew, which is bizarre, because the Jews actually say, the Jews believe that all non-Jews uh, can at any moment just turn on them and kill them all, right? And they use the, the Holocaust as, as an example of that. So that would give you impetus as a, as a person if you had that, if you, were, if you were possessed of that ideology, if you were possessed of that belief that we could be wiped out at any moment by basically all other 8 billion people on the planet. Uh, anywhere from Asia to you know to to Australia um, or from Alaska to, to Australia um, that that would make you want to you know control things expand your influence and you would always be working towards making sure that you have as much control uh, in countries around the world as possible you want to get your diplomats in there you want to work things in your favor you want to keep uh, you want to have your ears on you know you want to have intelligence gathering, you're paranoid, basically. It's a, par it's a state of paranoia, right? If you think that, I mean, imagine you were walking around thinking that pretty much everybody in the street was out to get you. That at any moment they could just say, there's a Neil. We don't like Neils, we're going to kill him. You would, you would be a bit paranoid, right? Uh, and that obviously is synonymous with the idea of, it's, it's the same, same thing, a different version of the idea of empire, of manifest destiny, of, well, of a predatory nature of wanting to control as much of the world as possible. One is supposedly to defend yourself against being wiped out again or, or genocided again. And the other one is because, well, uh, I like having real estate. The more real estate I can get, the better. So both of them, they're, 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 the two interests converge, basically. Yeah. You know? So they're kind of being honest when they say, we're over there 8,000 miles away because it's in our national interests. Yeah, but if your national interest is to control the world and yeah. to... And to be like smog from, you know, the Hobbit or whatever, basically, you know, like lie like a big, you know, a big 
you know reptile <laughs> reptile on top of a biggest pile of gold as possible well then yeah you're never going to stop going around collecting the gold and, and you're going to demand it all the time and you never have enough you know and it's a self-fulfilling it's, it's a it's a it self-fulfills in terms of uh, um you know you keep to keep it going basically that you'll never say that um once you've started collecting as much as possible, much resources, control, power, etc., as, uh, as you can, uh, you realise that well, if I stop now, someone might come and take the person, the stuff I haven't got, the country I haven't, I haven't forced to submit, might come and take what I have away from me. Basically, I have to have it all. Yeah. Ultimately, what's available, like, in, and obviously we're talking about the globe, the, the planet. The idea is, it's very quickly get to the point where you say, well, we have to control all of it. Absolutely all of it. And that's why they're so incensed about uh, over Russia and, any, and China or anybody pushing back against them, you know, because it's like, it feels like an existential crisis. And it is if you're existen- existential, as in you're, the reason for your being is to control as much, or you've decided the reason for your being, for your existence is to control as much, all of the world, uh, then anybody who says, not here, well, you're threatening my existence. It's kind of like the Israeli thing, you know, where, you know, Hamas says, Israel has no right to exist, you know. Uh, I'm pretty sure psychologically at that level, that, that's the kind of way it feels to those people. It's not so much a thought out, kind of a fully thought out um, concept, but, uh, uh, but, but it feels, I think that they, they have a feeling where they have to keep going, keep going, keep going, you know. I, I know of at least one very well thought out um, conception of the world and the different peoples in it. That was, it was... Um, very popular in the 19th century um, in Western Europe, in Britain, in the US then as well. Um, a political theory, at the time there was no pretensions to democracy and spreading freedom and individual rights. It was about civilizing the world. And they they conceived of the peop- the natives they were bringing civilization to as being childlike. It's a recurring theme mm-hmm. over and over and over again. Um, I think it's partly sincere. I think they were actually going and meeting these different kinds of people and observing them, and they found them to be childlike. And one of the most common refrains was that they um, uh, they are ruled by their passions, mm-hmm. which makes it sound bad, but what they really meant was that they are emotional, mm-hmm. that they display emotions they're not... They, they didn't say it like this, but I think what they meant was they're not afraid of their emotions. They're not afraid of expressing them. Mm. They are emotional, like normal human beings, right? Mm. And I think to a certain mindset, particularly the ones that were most steeped in going out there and colonizing, mm. they really did have a different kind of psychology. Yeah. Where, and it was reflected then in their ideology, in their political literature, in their scientific theories. And it's still emerges quite often today still in a belief that Western thinking is rational, mm-hmm. period, and over here it's emotional, it's irrational. Mm. Um, and we need them being childlike, we need to raise them into adulthood. And they they developed a whole theory where whereby we, you see, we have emerged from the primitive state. We're now above the fray. We, we've evolved the rest of the world has yet to, but we're going to help them get there. Mm. Um, this mm. is, if you like, the, the positive side to their I- ideology. Um, 
about why they had to go out there to help people. And you see, it, you see it still today. It's just told in a slightly different context where Samantha Power says, we need to free these people, mm-hmm. bring them democracy and so on, human rights, etc. Um, the reason that's on my mind is, well, we've already touched a bit on psychology, um, but it popped in my head again today because I read a Sunday Times op-ed today by Boris Johnson. Mm, lovely. <laughs> Um, he tore into Jeremy Corbyn, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, he said, Corbyn came from a, quote, infantile leftist background, end quote, that led him to sympathize with, quote, any country, any movement, however unappealing, that is hostile to Britain. Concluding, quote, Corbyn shames himself by lending his succor. Truly, he is the Kremlin's useful idiot. Mm. Now, obviously, on the face of it, that it's so wrong. Where do you start? Um, the only adult in the room of British politics at the moment is Jeremy Corbyn. And Boris Johnson has accused him of being the very opposite, the most infantile. Mm-hmm. Um, infantile leftist background. I was like, what on earth does he mean by that? But then I remembered that this, that the political theory and the way it developed over a century. I think Johnson, he's not consciously connected the two, but I think he really does see people who um, actually believe maybe basic universal humanitarian truths for want of a better term that we should all try to get along as best as possible basically simple truths that are so antagonistic to the ideology someone like johnson's mindset is steeped in and when he hears corbyn i think he sees him as did his forefathers see the natives Mm -hmm. he they saw uh, they see everyone else including large swathes of their own population as being essentially crazy Mm -hmm. maldeveloped psychologically Mm. Um, they're the sick ones, not us. And, mm. and they have spent the last 200 years trying to cure the earth. Mm. Well, they haven't really. You know? I mean, that's, of course they haven't. This is a narrative that they tell themselves, obviously, and there's a predatory instinct behind that, which whenever you go into a country and you see a bunch of natives who are naive or childlike, whatever, who mm. don't really, not very worldly wise, wise or not very rational. Well, I mean, there's two responses to that. One is to see it as cute or nice or interesting or whatever or see them you can see your advantages over them whatever but then whenever you you immediately decide to exploit those advantages over them that's how you end up having uh, those naive kind of children of other countries of other of other nations um that were colonized being turned into slaves basically um and these people and that's you know that's kind of that's largely what what happened you know i mean that's how i mean not just the british but uh, for example, the Belgians in, in the Congo and stuff, you know, basically enslaved thousands and thousands or tens of thousands of people and treated them horribly, cut off arms and hands and feet and stuff uh, on the rubber plantations, you know. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, the, the British did the same thing when they when they went into any country and they wanted to exploit the resources and these naive children suddenly became a bit more militant. Or Some of them became a bit more militant and started attacking them. Well, then you put them down and you end up putting a bunch of, a large number of them into kind of concentration camps effectively, you know. So your your grandiose kind of uh, benevolent benevolent view of the world as as the as the civilizer of the of, of all these people uh, very quickly turns into something very different. 
Uh, and of course, you ultimately blame those other people for not accepting our wonderful, uh, benevolent, civilizing uh, forces. They just wouldn't sit down and do what we told them to do. You know, the idea that they have a, a will of their own just didn't come into it. Well, they do have a will of their own. They, they recognize that, but it was the wrong will. You know, it wasn't. It was clashing with our own will type thing, you know. And um, there's an argument. I mean, it's it's so attractive, that, that attitude that you suggested Boris Johnson and his type have. Because it's true that you know the world is a dangerous place, and you can't be wa- walking around with it wide, walking around wide-eyed and bushy-tailed and thinking everybody has, uh, everybody's going to cooperate and be nice type of thing. But that doesn't mean you have to go to the op- opposite extreme and assume that everybody is out to get you, basically. Like which is Johnson is is it thinks in the case of of Russia and China and everybody else that everybody it's dog eat dog. If you don't get it first, someone else will take it from you. That's 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 coming from inside them, you know. I mean, it doesn't have to be black or white. You can't have a middle road where you say you're worldly wise and you realize that, uh, you know, there are some dodgy people out there and you have to be careful and stuff, but there are also an awful lot of well-meaning good people uh, in other countries and stuff, and you don't have to uh, see them all as uh, either exploitable or a threat uh, to your to your position, you know. Um, so it's ultimately, as is true in in many cases in human human nature is, is that what you're accusing other people of is actually what what is in you yourself you know uh, in, in many cases there's there's something extraordinarily um poetic uh, not a good choice of word about the fact that at this time Boris Johnson is the foreign secretary mm. of Britain because he is, he, they have put him out as their the the prime their, their chief diplomat, their chief interactor with other peoples. Yeah. I mean, it's extraordinary because it, it, he's long been known in the UK as an not an idiot, a but a buffoon, as a clown, as somebody who makes gaffes right. constantly. Who isn't serious? Uh, yes. Um, he is similar-ish to Trump in that he he's famous for having a media background. He right. began as a journalist, but then he was on a talk, like game shows on TV. First as a participant, then as a host. And anyway, he still climbs the ladder, and he ends up as the mayor of London. And now he's foreign secretary. And this guy, he he says the one things they should not say, articulate ever. In specific situations, um, there's one last year where he's speaking uh, somewhere in London. It was never meant to be published, but someone had it on tape, and then, then it was published. But nevertheless, so he's speaking to a public audience. I guess maybe among the right people, because mm-hmm. they laughed and cheered mm-hmm. what he said. He was praising how um, Libya was doing better, mm-hmm. and that he had great hopes for Libya because he sees it as being the next, he sees the city of Sirte in Libya as being, it could potentially be the next Dubai, comma, just as soon as they clear all the dead bodies out of the way. Mm -hmm. You mean the dead bodies that your friend and fellow pupil at one point, David Cameron, piled up with the British and French and American intervention in Libya to destroy that country. Mm-hmm. Now, that, that's a gaffe, but it's also a total, it's an insight into this totally different psychology, this mindset that would would first think it and then say it. Mm-hmm. 
You know, he has, he has a lot of similarities with Churchill. I, I, I find that there's something striking about his appearance. Churchill was kind of strange looking. I don't know. I think he had like almost no eyelashes, very pale skin and blonde hair as well. I, I don't think they're related, but they probably are in a distant way. Um, uh, but John, Johnson is a big fan of Churchill and he wrote a book published in the last couple of years, I think. Um the Churchill factor, how one man made history. So that's his idol. Right. Um, which tells you a lot. John, uh, Johnson is also, has an American connection. I think he is part American on one yeah. side or something. Oh, he was born in New York. I forget. Um, as was Churchill. I think Churchill's mother was American as well. Mm. Um, yeah. <clears throat> so, yeah, let's just, maybe we'll just do a little roundup of the, uh, the latest in the script ball business, um, it's kind of ridiculous, obviously, but uh, what, I find, what I find interesting, actually, is that you have this chemical, chemical weapons attack in Salisbury, where script ball was supposedly, mm-hmm. uh, you know, chemical weapon, uh, weaponified, uh, exposed to chemical, some kind of chemical weapon. We don't know. It's all kind of falling apart, basically. Nobody knows what it was. Navichok, what the hell is that anyway? Was it like bleach and, you know... Uh, Tide pods or something mixed together. It's uh, supposed to be a nerve agent, but how is it if they're alive? I mean, but nobody knows. It's uh, and then in, in Salisbury, you have him subjected to this, and then a few weeks later, you have uh, a chemical attack today or yesterday, um, in yet another one in in Duma in East East Ghouta near near Damascus, uh, supposed chemical weapon attack. But there's no evidence for it. the news reports on this latest event in Syria. Um, even Western news reports point out that um, these are unverified claims. It just comes from uh, Jaish al-Islam, some gaggle of disparate nutbag jihadi types who never read the Quran in their life, basically mercenaries. Uh, these people claim that there's some chemical weapon bomb was dropped by the Syrian army, whatever. No evidence for it, no real evidence for it, no, um, no way to uh, uh, confirm it. Yeah, it's all over the newspapers, and Trump comes out and says, you know, very bad, terrible chemical weapons attack. People, innocent people killed. No access to them. Big price, big A- price. Animal Assad. Animal Assad did it. Putin mentions Putin specifically. Putin responsible, and there's going to be a big price. Just said big price, big price, big price. Uh, I think it used. actually continued in the next week. Oh right, big I price don't. to pay. Blah blah blah. Blah, big price to pay. Blah blah blah. It's going to be huge. Um, and this is just a couple of a couple, maybe a week or two weeks after he said that the that they was planning on removing, uh, we're going to draw down and uh, withdraw the American troops from Syria. <laughs> uh, surprise, surprise! Wow. Uh, so you have two chemical weapons attacks within a month, more or less, um, of each other. One in Salisbury in the UK, uh, and the other one in Syria. And both of them centered around Russia. Both of them centered on, or the result of them being that Russia is blamed for both of them. Uh, neither of them hold any water. Um, neither of them obviously make any sense whatsoever. Uh, the Syrian army had more or less was at the point of routing the last remnants of the jihadis out of out of uh, East Ghouta, out of well, uh, Duma. The site this happened in is the last, Duma is the last, the last stronghold, stronghold right. of them. Right. So it's basically like these these jihadis probably made this up, 
carried out some kind of chemically type thing, threw a bunch of chlorine up in the air, something like that, launched it from a, a you know, a makeshift kind of, um, uh, you know, grenade launcher, grenade launcher or something. Uh, got a few people, got the white helmets in there to have the videos and the you know images for Western media. And it's effectively the way that they call in an airstrike because they're not regular U.S. military personnel. Obviously, they're just paid, armed, and trained by the U.S. military and others, but they're not regulars, so they can't actually call in an airstrike themselves. So this is the way they actually call in a U.S. airstrike of, of some description or a U.S. Tomahawk cruise missile strike uh, by have a chemical weapons attack. It's like the, U- the U.S. government says, listen, we'd like to help you in fact, we want to help you, but we need a pretext. Can you provide a pretext? They provide a pretext, uh, and then we can bash Russia as well and blame Russia for it. And um, and then in Salisbury, it's uh, the British government and the Americans basically saying, listen, we need to demonize Putin some more. Um, how are we going to do that? And they get their intel guys to basically, or someone just to go and drop some kind of, you know, rotten fish or something, or smear, you know, I don't know, give them a, have the waiter in a restaurant or something or someone, you know, it's obviously there are people who have access to Skripal living in Salisbury at the at the pleasure of, of MI5. The people who had access to him were MI5. Uh, whatever happened to him, you looked immediately to British intelligence because he was, they were his boss and British intelligence has a long history of poison, not poisoning, of, of killing or otherwise disposing of um people that they were associated with, agents or assets, whatever, they have a long history of doing that, you know. Um, so it's bizarre that no one would just kind of like go, yeah, this has got to have been, must have been MI5 really because they're the ones who, who had full access to script and could do whatever they want and set it up in whatever way they want. The idea that, you know, a couple of like KGB agents were roaming around Salisbury, you know, like pretending to, you know, blending in or something and pretend, and then getting access to this guy and doing whatever to him and like, I mean, you probably you've probably read about the whole situation already. Like this, this is supposedly like Novichok, serious, deadly nerve agent type thing. Now he, he was on a door handle, possibly. They still don't know. Don't know. Don't know how he got it. Might have been in the restaurant. Might have been in his car. You know, might have been. Who knows? You know, on one of his scratch cards that he apparently was addicted to uh, to playing. You know, they gave him a loaded scratch card and he sniffed it or something. Uh, <laughs> But anyway, no idea how he got it. It's still just all a load of speculation and nonsense. But what uh, with the latest one that it was on his door handle means that he got exposed to it. Him and his daughter got exposed to it on the morning uh, that they of, of the afternoon that they became became ill. Uh, so it took hours and hours. They went from the house into the car, uh, went for a drive somewhere, then went to a restaurant, had a meal, then went to a pub, then came back from the pub. And they were fine all the way through this. And this is hours, hours after they're exposed to this deadly nerve agent that makes you drop dead in seconds. So hours later, they're fine. And then finally, they sit on the bench and, and, and kind of start kind of acting a bit weird. And, uh, and that, that's, that's, so what, what is this then? You know, Novich, what the hell are you talking about? These people, where's my fish? You know what I mean? Jesus Christ. I mean, really. I have a fish here, actually, and I mean, really, I wish Boris Johnson was here. Um, 
some serious. We need slapping. to get you something to hit that with. Cause I would just you can't smash all this equipment. I would like, <laughs> what the hell are you talking about? It's just horrible to listen to their bullshit. You know when someone's giving you a story. I mean, it happens. What's annoying is that if someone gives you a story, if you ask someone, you know, so what happened there uh, the other day? Say something. Someone did something and it inconvenienced you in some way. And it's just so what happened? And they start giving you this bullshit story that's obviously bullshit. It doesn't make any sense. You have to stop them. And hang on a minute. How, how did, what are you you're saying that this that that happened in this? But that doesn't make any sense. I mean, that's that's the normal human response of someone who's feeding you a line of bullshit that is completely in, 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 incoherent or inconsistent. Uh, but in because the media just parts it, we're forced to kind of like do that ourselves. You know, you're forced to write on Facebook or write on on Twitter or something and and, and try and point out the obvious flaws in this ridiculous story. You know. Um, I guess it was meant to be sold on the strength of it being because of Russia. That's that's supposed Russia. to have its own credence. It's such that you could say anything in this climate, anything, and it would make sense because of Russia. Um, because Russia has been built up to be this mm-hmm. evil power, and that's control of, of the media and none of it. And people just you know swallow nonsense. I mean, what use are people's brains? You know. Why do they not think? We're not talking about, you know, PhD level thinking here. We're just talking about someone having a decent amount of skepticism about the narratives that someone will give you. Has anybody ever lied to you? Has anybody ever tried to put one over on you? Have they ever tried to sell you a bullshit story? And did you pretty quickly afterwards find out, yeah, you know, or maybe you got burned by it once or twice? The point is that people do that all the time. So why don't, why are, why do ordinary people not immediately suspect that of, of, uh, of governments? And of the media, the establishment media, why did they not immediately say, you know, these people probably have an agenda, you know? I mean, I mean, and particularly in the details of the story, you know, when they just put it out there as, Russia did it. Have you any evidence? Shut up, you traitor. Russia did it. It's like immediately, you should go, uh, sounds like you're trying to convince me of something there that, uh, without any evidence, that um, sounds like you're appealing to emotions to get me to hate someone without any evidence, so I'm not going to buy your story. What's wrong with that level of thinking? What's wrong with people that they can't engage in that level of thinking? I think a lot of ordinary people have. They see through it, though. The, the, the most striking thing is the uniformity of the official level response in NATO countries. Uh, there are a couple outside of it. Australia is technically not NATO, but it went along sort of Georgia and Ukraine. But everywhere else, they're all NATO countries. Oh, and Ireland, Republic of Ireland, chucked out one, one Russian diplomat as well. One Russian but cleaning lady. The exception of a few Central European countries, they all... Yeah, why? But that makes it even jump. worse. These are supposedly the, the cream of the cream, right? The cream of the crop, right? These are the, these are the, the educated politicians, right? And they've been in the game. They know what, know, know what, know what happens. They know that this kind of stuff goes on. They know the, the perfidy and the... You know the, um, the 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 half stories and the lies and the manipulations and the and the black ops and all this. They all surely know about it. Even even they may not have been directly involved in something like that, but surely they've heard. You know, second hand. So why why would they all be like, yeah, oh yeah, Russia did it? Really? I mean, what is somebody paying these people to to be stupid, to to pretend to be stupid, to have to to, to not use their brain, to not do the right thing, which is go do kind of what Jeremy Corbyn did, which was, uh, hang on a minute, have you got any evidence? Just small thing, but evidence, maybe, maybe a little bit of evidence for what you're saying. 
Shut up, you traitor. Bribery is, is going to be a part of it, but blackmail is probably the bigger part. There's um, a load of functionaries, though, that aren't speaking up. Why aren't more people speaking up? Because their jobs, basically. Bribery, so you're talking about bribery here and is, is basically that you're getting a paycheck. So you can't, if you're working for a government and the government says A, well, then if you're getting a paycheck from the government, then you have to say A as well, even if you think B. Or maybe a lot of people actually just don't care about thinking. I'd say it, for now it remains the case that the elites in Western capitals continue. They, they see they see through this incident. I'm sure of it. Um, they're intelligent for the most part. Um, I'd say only a, a handful, maybe, of them actually believe that the, the British version of events is actually what happened. I'd say that they, for now, they continue to hitch their national interest. Well, it's kind of, it gets murky because they continue to see their own personal interest as the national interest and that the national interest remains best served hitching its wagon to this NATO empire, this Atlantic empire, right. this, this holdover of the British empire. Um, Here, here's, here's the best way. I mean, here's a thinking person, or, and it's not, not just him, obviously, anybody could, could come to this conclusion, but here's uh, Craig Murray actually wrote something today that uh, is just a narrative, you know, it's like a, a, a pretend dialogue between Putin and, uh, and someone in the Russian intelligence, and it goes, Comrade Putin, we have successfully stockpiled Novichoks in secret for 10 years and kept them hidden from the OPCW inspectors. We have also trained our agents in secret Novichok assassination techniques. I wish I could do this in a Russian accent. The program has cost hundreds of millions of dollars, but now we are ready. Naturally, the first time we use it, we will expose our secret and suffer massive international blowback. So who should be our first target? The head of a foreign intelligence agency, perhaps? A leading jihadist rebel in Syria? A key nuclear scientist? Even a head of state? No, Tovarich. There is this old retired guy I know living in Salisbury. <laughs> We released him from jail years ago. With respect, Comrade Putin, are you sure he is the most important target to reveal a program we have put so much resource into for 10 years? Yes. I sit here every day and I cannot concentrate on the affairs of Russia or the world as all the time I am thinking of Sergei Skripal. <laughs> I should never have let him out of jail to spend his life buying lottery tickets and eating in zizis. But you must make absolutely certain to kill him. <laughs> Don't worry, Comrade Putin. We have been training in secret Novichok assassination techniques for 10 years. We even have a detailed manual explaining our methods. We will <laughs> spread the Novichok on his outside door handle. <laughs> Are you sure, Comrade? Is there not a danger it will wash off or get diluted? No, Comrade Putin. It never rains in England. <laughs> uh, so that is a reasonable, uh, based on the official British government a narrative about what happened, that would be a reasonable discussion, a reasonable account of, of, of a kind of discussion that would have had to have taken place yeah. uh, in the Kremlin uh, <laughs> to, uh, for, for the British narrative to be, to be true. Um, but it's obviously not. And so, I mean, you know, that's more or less when people say this doesn't make any sense. You know, why would, when people say, and many people have been saying, why would Russia do this? It's ridiculous. That's basically what they mean. That's the narrative. Yeah. Well, that's, the, that's the idea in their, in, their, in, their, in their mind is like, this is ridiculous, you know. Um, it's just itself, uh, it's self-defeating, basically. It's, it's if Russia wanted to give itself a massive headache and 
and tarnish its image further in the international community, then they would go ahead and like poison with something, some aging former KGB, now MI5 agent, hanging out in Salisbury, basically just playing scratch cards, driving around in his Beamer and eating in restaurants. That's what he was doing. So let's take him out with our Navi chalk. I mean, it's nonsense, you know? I mean, headbanging stuff. Now they have a problem. The Skripals are alive and talking. Right. Well, there's talk about mm. them being given new identities in America. They'll probably be put up with that dude, uh, what do you call him, in the, the, the Olympic... Uh, the Olympic Committee, uh, the Russian Olympic uh, Committee guy, who the guy who exposed what's, what, what's his name? Uh, Radchenko yeah. or something. Radchenko. Radchenko or something like that. Yeah, him. They put him up and put the two of them up in the same apartment. The three of them can all <laughs> they can all wear socks. <laughs> they can all be, sunglasses. Yeah. and talking to the media. Yeah, they can all be weird together. Although like. I read in a, a London Times article today that um, MI6's preference is that they go to one of the other five eyes, um, namely Canada, Australia, or New Zealand. Um, wh- what was the reason they gave? Something to do with jurisdiction, because the the, the preference. Because why? Well, because they can better keep an eye on right. them. Yeah. And what does that say about the nature of the relationship of that small country of northwestern Europe with that huge country in North America called Canada, Australia, New Zealand? That it talks about them that way in public. Right. <laughs> we would have jurisdiction over the, in these countries, yeah. They are us. Yeah, well, they're the com- Commonwealth countries, right? Right. Um, well, maybe just a few background things on how the situation got to this point. Um, was it just a few days ago that um, um, Sergei Skripal's niece and um, his daughter Julia's uh, cousin, Victoria, um, was on several... Russian news channels um, being interviewed, but also I think right before she was interviewed, they played a recording that she had made of her phone conversation with Yulia, um, you know, in the hospital, and where Yulia had said, um, basically, I'm recovered, Dad's okay, um, we're all good, and the implication, like strong, str- I don't think she explicitly said it, but the strong implication was that they'd be discharged soon. Mm. Yeah. And um, go ahead. No, no, I was gonna, she did say okay. that, yeah. Yeah, okay, she did say that. And then, um, so Victoria has been on uh, Russian channels since then and um, being reported on in various news outlets as saying various things. One of the things she said about that conversation that she recorded was that um, it, to her it sounded like those were not, basically that Yulia her wasn't words. speaking freely. Yeah. It wasn't her, they weren't her words. She even said that during the conversation you couldn't hear yeah. it on the recording, but she thought she heard someone say, okay, you can speak now. Mm-hmm. And there was something weird about the number, like she called uh, Victoria on her cell phone as opposed to her landline, which right. um, was kind of weird. Well, of course um, that's going to be but, a case, you know. Mm-hmm. There's going to be MA5 people, you know, or right. intelligent people all around them. and They're, they're basically, uh, see, this is where it gets worse, you know. Not only have they been sacrificed or used in this way as uh, grist for the anti-Putin mill, where they basically were subjected to some kind of poison poisoning agent, uh, and had to spend several weeks in hospital. Um, not only that, but now basically the rest of their lives are forfeit. And remember that Yulia is a Russian citizen, but she's not mm-hmm. going to be allowed to go back to Russia. She's basically, they, I mean, they have got such a, a, very, a really bad deal, uh, you know, in the sense that they're now, uh, they're now, um, 
assets of the of the British. Do you British, work for us, British, or you're dead. British Crown, basically. You know what I mean? Because yeah. I mean, there's no way they can be allowed mm-hmm. to, uh, to 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 say anything. Um, certainly not in the short term, anyway. You know, uh, right. I don't think they will be. You know. So um, let me just read this um, this tweet. Moon of Alabama made this yesterday or day, the day before. So he calls it losing the information edge. Wednesday, Porton Down says uh, not Russian. Thursday, Her Majesty's government. Oh, secret implausible evidence. Well, implausible in brackets. So um, Wednesday, Porton Down says it's not Russian. The day after, um, the government says, oh, we've got secret evidence. So then on Thursday, the Russian embassy asks about uh, Skripal's pets, which were left in his apartment, a cat and a couple of guinea pigs. Then the day after, the government says, oh, sorry, they died. Um, right. Thursday, um, Yulia makes her phone call to Victoria and says, Dad's fine. And then Friday, oh, oh, um, yeah, Sergey is getting better. So if you remember, like, for the whole time, like, when it first happened, it was, um, everything in the news was that they had, like, a 1% chance of surviving, they were in mm. critical condition, condition, they're probably going to die. Um, and then, you know, as the weeks go on, then, oh, um, Yulia, she's better, she's fine, she's totally recovered, she's speaking, she's ready to leave, she's talking to her cousin. Okay, that's strange. And then she says, oh, Dad's fine, we hadn't heard anything about him um, at that point. And then the day after, the government says, oh, uh, yeah, actually, he's, uh, he's you know, out of his coma or whatever, and now he's, he's getting better. And, um, like, they're playing catch-up with... <laughs> with uh, this information it was very very strange like it it's and the fact that there's no um you know no uh, video or photographs of them they're like totally shut yeah. off from any kind of uh media at, at all or and not not even media but from their own government um, yep. they're not letting russian the envoys they're supposed you're supposed to let somebody from the embassy come and see them under mm-hmm. international law britain has claimed that um, it is not a party to Article 36 of the Vienna Convention, which is like 150 years old. That's how normal it's supposed to be in practice, um, which is technically true. But somebody else pointed out, I think it was John Helmer in Moscow, that actually Britain has signed with Russia an agreement that covers this. They have a bilateral treaty in which you are supposed to let mm-hmm. somebody see um their own citizen, mm. in whatever situation they may find themselves in. So they're breaking the law mm. uh, egregiously. Mm. And now they're talking seriously about disappearing them somewhere in the Anglosphere. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's just so dirty. I mean... What, mm-hmm. Yeah. The, uh, I just wanted, there's something else I wanted to say about the, uh, <clears throat> about the Duma East, East Guda so-called uh, chemical weapons attack uh, yesterday. Um, or was it today? It was late. I yesterday. think it was last night. Yeah. Last night, well, early morning probably in uh, in Syrian time, right? Yeah, um, but it only came on the news actually. Yeah, it, it took a while, you know. It, it only came on the news uh, this about midday, you know, GMT today. You know, I mean, the BBC only had it up at about uh, about midday or so. That's because it's not mm-hmm. even a sure thing that anything actually happened. Right, they don't even know anything happened. But of course, Trump comes on and says, like we said, big price, terrible, terrible, blah blah blah. I mean, get a freaking grip, you big orange-headed douchebag um what an idiot like he needs some big i would i'll have to get a big fish for him though a bigger <laughs> fish um but now i mean russia as you said russia had been warning about this how does russia know about this in advance uh because it's on the ground uh the syrian army is on the ground they know this kind of thing is being developed they hear in reports that this is what's going ahead and they know from previous 
uh, form basically that this is what the West does. It it kind of like manufactures in some way some kind of chemical attack in order to justify some Western, US, British, whatever move, a military move in, in Syria. And Moscow <coughs> is, uh, have been warning about this for the past few weeks actually. They've been talking about it for a few weeks and then two days ago they said it again that it was one of these attacks was imminent and it was going to be the rebels who did it obviously. And it was going to happen in Duma. And it was going to happen in that place. They specified the exact place where it was going to happen and then it happens and then of course everybody says, Russia did it. It's like, Jesus Christ, just donate your freaking brain to science. You do not need it. You, oh God. So anyway, but uh, the Russians' big problem here is that this is going to be used to launch some other, maybe direct action by the U.S. in Syria to try and save their terrorists, save their 9/11 terrorists, basically save Al Qaeda. America is going to try and save the Al Qaeda terrorists in Douma or in other parts of Syria by launching some kind of a an attack, and uh, Russia's has been warning, and even whenever they talked about this kind of attack coming up, they, were, they said it was going to be, uh, it, would, it would be done for a, to justify uh, some kind of a military intervention, US military intervention somewhere in Syria, some direct attack on the Syrian army. And But Russia is saying, listen, don't do this, because we have military personnel in that area, and particularly in, in, in Douma, and uh, near Damascus, and that, you know, there'll be serious consequences, you know, I, you'll pay a big price as well, you know, so uh, we'll have to wait and see, apparently the Joint Chiefs of Staff and all those other nutbags in, in, in America are, around Trump are talking about the possibilities or what they can do, what they might do, is it going to be another, you know, a uh, bunch of tomahawks or something fired at some crappy base somewhere? Or is it going to be some more direct action? We'll have to wait and see. But, or maybe just cruise missiles fired at more, more sensitive targets type thing, you know. Uh, so that we could have another repeat of, of of what happened last year with the with the Trump firing his tomahawk cruise missiles. But it might be worse this time in the sense that the the Americans might be up in the ante ante to the point of uh, not caring that uh, that Russian military personnel are in the way and maybe trying to directly attack the Syrian army. But in which case, you know, we'll have to see what happens, but uh, it's not good. Nope. Uh, so. I, um, I don't think we've discussed this on the show yet, but we had a conversation about uh, the possibility that they could go massive with another 9-11 type event. I mean, that's... These little things that kind of keep things ticking over, uh, an attack on Syrians, more chemical weapons, I don't think people care enough in the West for that to justify any kind of major move, you know? Mm -hmm. But we're looking at a number of things um, that have happened over the last two weeks. Uh, the opening of a U.S. base in Israel, joint exercises, Mm -hmm. The biggest ever, apparently, between U.S. and Israeli forces mm -hmm. in Israel, simulating um, coordinated attacks against Hezbollah, uh, the Syrian regime, mm -hmm. and uh, dealing with an insurgency in Gaza. And then it's, it's interesting that that has happened, that, quote, insurgency in Gaza, um, almost immediately after these exercises concluded. Um a kind of horror scenario dawned where 
despite kind of being held back in Syria these last two, three years, they may yet try to go massive and in such a way that they would, Russia would kind of be forced to take a backseat. So that we're not talking about here yeah. a horrible situation where it's conventional warfare direct between the US and Russia mm-hmm. and, and MAD and all that. Mm-hmm. We're talking about a situation where it's tailored so that Russia is actually out of the equation, mm-hmm. at least in the beginning of it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that would probably, it would most likely involve Israel, you know? Yeah. Because um, the Israelis are, are up for it, basically, you know I mean, with Iran and Syria and stuff like that, mm-hmm. you know, and they seem to be they seem to be asking for for serious problems for the state of Israel. Basically, they're you know they're they're pushing to that point, and obviously in a very difficult position because it's easy for the U.S. to rabble rouse and you know shoot some you know fund jihadis or create fires, set fires, start wars in, in you know thousands and thousands of miles away from their their home territory. But Israel is in a much more sensitive situation where if it does that, there's a there's a distinct possibility of Israel getting it in the neck kind of thing. You know what I mean? Uh, but Israel seems to be emboldened by, you know, by the fact that it's had such a, you know, it's got it, it's supported fully by the West type thing, you know. And I think Israel, the Israelis are slowly building up or angling for some kind of a a, a war, basically, you know what I mean, that they think will be uh, some maybe a limited... Some kind of a resolution. Some, well, some kind of limited war or something. They might not even say it as a resolution, but it would end up being a resolution for Israel. It would en- I think it would end up escalating very quickly uh, with Iran and Syria, basically, um where Israel would think that they they could act with impunity effectively and that they would get a, a response that they weren't expecting and then that would escalate and okay. Israel would respond and then the US would be dragged in and Russia would have to be kind of like, Russia would have to decide what to do basically, if anything. You yeah. know what I mean? To try and so maybe a repeat of the 2006 Lebanon war, only bigger because it would also it would involve Hezbollah directly against Israeli forces plus Iranian... Well, there's really in that situation forces really that are already in Iranian Syria. forces in that, in that situation. I think the the in, in the current climate, Israel would be probably be would use it to, to justify attacking inside Syria again. You know, more uh, air raids into Syria and stuff, and then they would get a kind of response that they weren't expecting, and, and you know, could escalate very quickly. You know, yeah, with the Iranians and the Syrians. You know, because I think the Israelis really want to do something. They're not happy. Obviously, they've been bombing into inside Syria for for quite a long time, sending planes and jets and on bombing raids inside Syria. So. Um, if if something kicked off with Hezbollah and Lebanon or Hamas or whatever, um, they would they would use that to justify attacking Iranian forces, quote unquote, inside Syria. When in fact they're probably attacking Syrian forces or who knows what. And then they would get a response that they weren't expecting, basically, uh, at this point. And then that would you know thinking they could do that because America has their back, but then maybe America will be too chicken because it's like well you know. At the end of the day, it's not our fight, you know, and America might go <laughs> just stand by and watch, basically, you know what I mean? Uh-huh. Also because of Russian uh, presence in Syria, where there, um, America can't just go in and start flying planes all over Syria and and, uh, and attacking whoever they like because they're running the risk of being shot down, you know what I mean? So very complicated, and, you know, you'd think they would just uh, all just wise up, but there's no chance of that happening. Because they're not... Anyway, I think we're going to leave it there for this week, folks. Um, we hope you enjoyed the show. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with another show. Until then, have a good one. See you next week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.